pray with me and we'll jump into Ezra chapter 7 and continue to worship the Lord. Let's pray. Our Father, if we looked at history, if we looked at our lives, if we looked at your word, one thing we would see for certain is the fact that you're faithful and you make ways out of no way. That we cannot save ourselves, but you can. That as we will examine your word, we will see the way that you guided and opened doors for your people. And you still do that today. You're faithful. And so I do pray now that as we read your word, that you would draw us more into what is ours in Christ. I pray that you will arrest our hearts and arrest our affections and arrest our minds that we would see you as our teacher. Would you speak through me, your servant, for Christ's sake, amen. All right, we're back in Ezra. We're in Ezra chapter seven. We're gonna finish it up today and then we're almost done with this book. So uh, been making our way through it. So we're in Ezra seven. We'll be looking at verses 11 through 28. And if you're new to Redeemer, we, we work through books of the Bible for the most of the time. And we'll do special series here and there, but by and large, uh, we preach through books of the Bible. And that puts a burden upon me to try to make sure to be faithful to the word, to look at the word in context. And so uh, we're going to push our way through. And don't worry, I'll, I'll catch you up to speed. Ezra chapter 7, verse 11 through 28. And this is the word of the Lord. This is a copy of the letter that King Artaxerxes gave to Ezra the priest, the scribe, a man learned in the matters of the commandments of the Lord and his statutes for Israel. Artaxerxes, the king of kings, to Ezra, the priest, the scribe of the law of the God of heaven, peace. And now I, Artaxerxes, I make a decree that anyone of the people of Israel or their priests or their Levites in my kingdom who freely offers to go to Jerusalem may go with you. For you are sent by the king and his seven counselors to make inquiries about Judah and Jerusalem according to the law of your God, which is in your hand and also to carry the silver and the gold that the king and his counselors have freely offered to the God of Israel, whose dwelling is in Jerusalem. And with all the silver and gold that you shall find in the whole province of Babylonia, and with the free will offerings of the people and the priests, vowed willingly for the house of their God that is in Jerusalem. With this money then you shall with all diligence buy bulls and buy rams and lambs and their grain offerings and their drink offerings and you shall offer them on the altar of the house of your God that is in Jerusalem. And whatever seems good to you and to your brothers to do with the rest of the silver and the gold you may do according to the will of your God. The vessels that have been given to you for the service of the house of your God you shall deliver them before the God of Jerusalem. And whatever else is required for the house of your God, which it falls to you to provide, you may provide it out of the king's treasury. And I, Artaxerxes, the king, make this decree to all the treasurers in the province beyond the river, whatever Ezra the priest, the scribe of the law of the God of heaven, requires of you, let it be done with all diligence." up to 100 talents of silver, 100 cores of wheat, 100 baths of wine, 100 baths of oil and salt without prescribing how much. Whatever is decreed by the God of heaven, let it be done in full for the house of the God of heaven, lest his wrath be against the realm of the king and his sons. 
And we also notify you that it shall not be lawful to impose tribute or custom or toll on any one of the priests, the Levites, the singers, the doorkeepers, the temple servants, or other servants of this house of God. And you, Ezra, according to the wisdom of your God that is in your hand, appoint magistrates and judges who may judge all the people in the province beyond the river, all such as knows the law of your God. And those who do not know them, you shall teach them. Whoever will not obey the law of your God and the law of the king, let judgment be strictly executed on him, whether for death or for banishment or for confiscation of his goods or for imprisonment. And this is Ezra speaking here right now. Blessed be the Lord, the God of our fathers, who put such a thing as this into the heart of the king to beautify the house of the Lord that is in Jerusalem and who extended to me his steadfast love before the king and his counselors and before all the king's mighty officers. And I took courage for the hand of the Lord my God was on me and I gathered leading men from Israel to go up with me. Amen. So it was February 2006 and we were driving from Jackson to Birmingham and I know it was February 2006 because my niece, Hannah, was born and we were on the way to the hospital to see Hannah and I passed the exit. So I got, I'm driving into Birmingham and I'm supposed to get off at one exit and I end up passing it and so I had to drive a little farther and turn back around and come back. And my wife said, babe, what just happened right there? And I said, I don't know, like I, I couldn't see. And so I saw the signs and, and I saw it, but, but by the time that I could make out that this was my exit, I was already past it. And so I couldn't turn around, it was raining, so I turned around, went back. And then about two weeks later, I was right here, like not in this literal pulpit, but I was here leading in worship, and we didn't have the balcony, and we didn't have the screens, and so I was doing the announcements, I was coming up here looking at the announcements on the bulletin, and I was about to read, and I was gonna pray. And I looked out on the congregation, and you people down here were fine, but like you people up there, you were a blur, like I could not see and could not make faces. And so it, it, it caused me alarm. And so we were at growth group that week and I remember asking the growth group, hey, pray for my eyes. And Angela Simpkins says, you just need to go see an optometrist. <laughs> and so Angela gave me a list of, of her optometrists and so I went and so I got there. You know how they do when you go get your eyes exam, they put, they put the little sheet in front of you. And it has all the letters and they, they're bigger and smaller and smaller. And she's trying to figure out, can you see? And so she puts the list in front of me. I said, hey, Doc, those, those letters are blurry. And she started laughing. She says, the letters aren't blurry. It's your eyes. <laughs> and there was nothing wrong with the sign. The sign was placed exactly where it needed to be according to U.S. highway standards. And there was nothing wrong with your faces. <laughs> it, was, it was like, it was me. Like, my vision was off. And because of that, it distorted everything that I saw. Now I'm nearsighted, so sometimes you'll see me up here struggling. I'll read because I don't need my glasses when I'm looking at this, but then if I do this, like I cannot see you up there. But glasses, they, they help me as a person with defective vision to see reality as it really is because something's defective right here. Now I say that because I'm gonna introduce a term. I'm sure some of you will know what it is. I'm going to explain it and then we're gonna jump into the text. It's just a whole idea of a biblical world and life view. Biblical world and life view. 
Now, before I talk about what it is, I want to give you an example and then explain it, and then we'll dive into the text, okay? So first thing, this is a new phrase. We're in the Presbyterian Church. We all got our phrases and our vocabulary, so I'm going to explain it, right? So here's the thing. I'm a Dallas Cowboys fan, and hopefully in a few weeks, we will win the Super Bowl, right? Now, here's the thing. If Dallas wins... And you, were, and you were to ask 20 different people on the roster, how did you pull it off? You would probably get at least five or six different responses. In other words, this is, football is not like tennis or golf where you are an individual. Everyone wins, but how we won or how the team wins might be up for discussion. So here's an, let's say you win, you, get, you got... 53 people who are on the team, 46 who can dress out. Out of the 46, you may get 23 who can actually play. So let's say you lined up 23 men who were on the Cowboys and you asked them, good game today, tell me how you guys won. Person number one is probably going to say something like this. This was our year. It was our destiny. I told the team before the season started that we were going to make it all the one. Like, like this is our fate. This is our chance to win, and it's now, Right? So there's a, an element of luck and, and fate and destiny that's wrapped up into his explanation, which is really his understanding of who won. Now, you ask person number two, man, I, I, I just, I would not let us lose. I was not going to not win the playoffs. I was not going to quit. I was going to do it. And what you hear when you hear him talking about is human effort. Human effort, we outplay them. I'm not denying that, but from his vantage point, number two, no, nah, bro, it's not about luck. It's not about chance. No, we did this today, dog, right? That's person number two. We did it. Now, you get to person number three, and he might be a highly super spiritual Christian. It was the Lord's will today, brother, right? <laughs> and it's, it's not effort. It's not luck. It's all the Lord. Really highly spiritual, right? That's number three. Then you might get a hybrid of the two, right? And, and I'll give you an example of this because I know it's true. If you go back and look at USA Today, last week's edition, Chris Berman is no longer as a, a sportscaster. And Des Bryant sent him a tweet saying, hey, we're going to miss you, Chris. And then Chris sort of responded in the USA Today. And this is what he writes about how he viewed his successful career with ESPN. He says, I landed at the right time. And I was fortunate enough and maybe smart enough and certainly lucky enough to not screw it up, at least not too badly. Now, right there in his worldview, what you hear, his success was dependent upon two things, luck and chance, A, and then my own ambition, I did it. That's a hybrid of one and two. So that's a viable option, right? Then you might get a guy who might have a biblical word in life view, and what he's going to say is, you know what, the Lord gives talent. The Lord built this team, the Lord gave opportunity, and we worked hard. But you ask any of those players on that team, they're all going to give you a different response. Why? Because of their worldview. Because of how they see talent, how they see victory, how they see themselves, how they see winning, it's coming out. Now, I say that because a biblical world and life view 
It is like these glasses that I'm wearing. So reality is happening. Things are happening in history and people are coming in of our lives and presidents are being elected and people die. And, and here's the thing, that, that unless you sort of put on Christ and sort of put on this lens, then we are all prone to mistake and distort everything is happening out there. But in Christ, like you really do, you really can sort of put this on and see reality, right? In a way that pleases the Lord. So here's the thing, we all have a worldview. And worldview seeks to answer these questions. What does it mean to be human? What is right? What is wrong? Is there a God? What is he like? What's the penalty for not doing what he causes, calls me to do? What's the reward if I do it? Can I really do it? What happens to me when I die? Here's the thing, those are worldview issues. How you answer those questions, they fundamentally shape how you and I live. They fundamentally shape. One example, when you die, Paul says, do not grieve as those who have no hope. He does not say don't grieve, but your biblical worldview, do you know what Jesus has done in the midst of grief? You can have hope. Put this on and see it that way, right? Now, here's the thing. We all have a worldview. Whether you can communicate it or not, whether you know it or not, you have one, and it's obvious in how you act and decisions you make. Here's another thing about a worldview, right? It's often inconsistent in every last one of us. Between what we know and what we do, what we believe and what we do. There's often this disconnect. Let me give you two examples. One example is this. I love the church and I love the mission of the church, right? That's a, that, that, that is something you are agreeing or believing, but here's the thing. If you don't come to church, and if you don't give to the church, and if you don't serve in the church, and if you won't submit to the church's authority, then you don't really love the church. You see how it is? There's an inconsistency there. We say it because we know we're supposed to say it, but practically speaking, we might wrestle here. It's a worldview issue. Now, here's another thing. We might say as believers that God is present, that God is near, that God is at work, but don't we practically feel like he's not near at times? See, deism is this whole idea. I'm throwing out one more word, deism. It's a worldview. I hope I've unpacked that. Deism is another form of religion that says this. There is a creator, and he has created everything, and yet he's wound it up, and he's left it over here, and he is out to sleep doing whatever he does, and he is not engaging with what he created. That's a popular view. Like some people believe that they believe that there is a creator, but the creator is not intricately and personally involved in the affairs of this world. Now, here's the thing. If you take that and you extrapolate that out farther, then you end up with this. If God is not engaging in the world and is not near the world, then guess what? He's not near me. He's not engaging me. He's not at work in my life and my heart and my family. Now, if you live long enough as a Christian, I promise you, one day you will say that. One day you will struggle with God, where are you? And so you can profess with your mouth that he is sovereign and present, but then you will wonder, where are you? You seem so hidden. You see the incompatibility? Or you can become successful and make a lot of money or get a promotion, and you can be tempted to think that it was my talent, my time, I did this, and that's also a lie. It's pride. 
And so whether you're on the end of despair, thinking that God is not near, is not active, or the end of arrogance where you think it's only you, both things are incompatible with the biblical world and life view. The incompatibility, it's in every single one of us. Now, why? Why, is there, why are we so inconsistent? Because something is wrong. That we were conceived in sin. And sin did not just affect our hearts and our lives, but it affects how we see things. We can't see correctly. We can't behave correctly. We can't perceive reality as it ought to be perceived. And that's a part of our brokenness is we navigate through life wondering if he's near, wondering if he's at work, wondering, wondering, wondering. It's a part of our brokenness. We don't know how to see what we see. Here's the good news, though. The good news is this. Your worldview can change, and your worldview can change because you can change from the inside out. So I firmly believe that when Jesus Christ saves a human being, he remakes you and reforms you after the image of your creator. In other words, it is possible as a born-again believer to see all of life as God sees all of life. And see, that's my definition or a definition of having a truly biblical world and life view. It's not just that I see this and this. as it, I see everything. I see myself as God sees me. I see my neighbor as God sees me. I see history as God sees history. I see God as God sees God. And only Jesus can do that. Now, we've talked about worldview. I've kind of told you where we're going. What we get in this section in 7 and 8 of chapter uh, of Ezra, we get a bird's eye view into how God's people saw the world. And for them, God was not creator who is detached. He was not a creator who was not intricately involved in every single fabric of their lives. That is not how they saw the world. We actually see the opposite. They saw the invisible hand of God very much present in their lives, and it shapes them. Now, I want to, show, I want to put the passage in context. Where am I getting this whole idea that the hand of God you see it. The reason I love this section is because that phrase, the hand of God, it's used six times and three times are in chapter seven and three times are in chapter eight, which means that when you read Ezra seven and Ezra chapter eight, there is not one thing that is happening according to Ezra that is not because God's hand is at work in it. So look at it with me. I'm going to track with me. Look at Ezra chapter seven, verse six. This Ezra went from Babylonia. He was a scribe skilled in the law of Moses that the Lord, the God of Israel, had given. And the king granted him all that he asked for because the hand of the Lord his God was on him. So right there, Ezra gets what he wants. Why? Not because he's a persuasive asker. God's hand is on him. 
Go down to verse 9 of chapter 7. For the first day of the first month, he began to go up from Babylonia. And on the first day of the fifth month, he came to Jerusalem for the good hand of his God was on him. And so that journey, that journey from Babylon to Jerusalem, he made it there safely because the hand of God got him there. Keep on going. Go over to the passage that we're going to look at a little bit later. Look at verse 28. And I took courage for the hand of the Lord, my God, was on me. Right? Now go down to verse 8, chapter 18. When they lacked men, look at what it says. In chapter 8, verse 18. And by the hand of our God on us, they brought us a man of discretion. Turn over to chapter 8 and look at verse 22, the end of it. The hand of our God is for good on all who seek him, and the power of his wrath is against all who forsake him. Look at, the, look at chapter 8, verse 31. And then we departed from the river Ahava on the 12th day of the first month to go to Jerusalem, and the hand of our God was on us. And he delivered us from the hand of our enemy and from the ambushes along the way. You see what's happening here? In this section, in 7 and 8, there is not one single thing that happens that they don't say God's hand was with us. That's what I want to talk about. What's so beautiful about this hand of God? Now, here's the thing. It's not like they saw a hand, right? Like they didn't see a literal hand. No more than when the scriptures say the eyes of the Lord run to and fro across the earth or the ears of the Lord are forever upon his people that when they cry out to them, he hears them, or that smoke comes from the nostrils of God. If you go back and read the Old Testament, there's a bunch of language where God, who is a spirit, who is in heaven, who is omnipresent, omniscient, all-knowing, all-powerful, where he has ascribed human qualities. Now, with Jesus, there is a hand on the throne. There are human eyes on the throne because he is God. But when this was sort of written, you know, we don't know, like, but they didn't see a real hand. And that's the, that's the beauty. They didn't see a real hand, but they saw a real God working through secondary means. So this is what I want to look at. The first thing is that the hand of God changes how we see. Now, remember, if something is distorted, the object is right. When I put these glasses on, I'm not seeing that new. I'm seeing that correctly. And so when I say that the hand of God changes how they see, it's not changing what they see because they're seeing things that physically happen and happen and happen. It's changing how they see it. And that's important. Now, what's obvious in this text is that all of this is done by an earthly king whose name is Artaxerxes. You see his name at least four or five times in this chapter. And so what I want to do is sort of go through and show you that Scripture is not, it's not ashamed that this is a unsaved, unregenerate king who is really doing all of this. Like, it, it, look, look, look at it with me. Look at verse 11 of chapter 8. This is a copy of the letter that King Artaxerxes gave to Ezra. So King Artaxerxes gave Ezra a letter, right, that had been written or dictated or composed. Look at verse 12. Artaxerxes, the king of kings. This is the salutation of the letter to Ezra, the priest, the scribe of the law of the Lord. So Artaxerxes is sending this by way of Ezra. 
Look at verse 13. And I, Artaxerxes, I make this decree. Look at verse 21. And I, Artaxerxes, the king, I make this decree. In other words, this is all coming from a real king who is really, really, really writing and acting in history. Now, what's the content of the letter? Notice what it says in verse 13. You are sent by the king. Look at verse 14. I make a decree that any of the people of Israel or their priests or Levites in my kingdom who freely leave, wants to leave Babylon and go to Jerusalem, you may go. Look at verse 14. For you are sent by the king. Who's sending them? The king. Look at verse 15. And carry the silver and the gold. Who gave the silver and the gold? According to verse 15. Carry the silver and the gold that the king and his counselors have freely offered to the God of Israel. Again, the king has offered this. You go down to verse 19. The king also gave them vessels, the vessels that have been given to you. Look at verse 20. He gave them a royal tab. Like, look at it. And whatever else is required for the house of God, which it falls to you to provide, you may provide it out of the king's treasury. The king is doing all of this, all of it. When you read the letter, he's giving silver, he's giving gold, he's giving them everything. And two things are clear. God's people are being treated graciously and kindly. That's one. You got to see that in here. And the other thing you have to see, King Artaxerxes is doing it. They're being blessed, and this pagan king is the one blessing them. But look at what Ezra saw. It would be tempting to think that the person who was ultimately responsible for blessing God's people is the king. But Ezra puts his glasses on, and look at what it says. Look at what it says in chapter 7, verse 27. Blessed be the Lord, the God of our fathers, who put such a thing as this into the heart of the king. You see what Ezra sees? He sees the generosity. He sees the king. He sees them getting blessed. But with my glasses on, buddy, you not blessing them. God is. God has literally put this. He has taken all of this stuff that he wants them to have, and he has put this right inside of your heart, and you are as if you are a pawn in the hands of the real king of Israel. It's not changing what he sees. It's changing how he sees it. What does this mean? It means this, Christian. You and I are free to not ask, God, are you at work in my life? That's the wrong question. The question is where and through whom? How are you working in my life and showing me that you run it? You run it all and you will be pleased to use people around me to do it. That's what Ezra sees. He sees generosity and goodness coming from a human, but he knows that the ultimate person who is blessing God's people is God. Eugene Peterson writes this in his book, Christ Plays in 10,000 Places. 
It never seemed to have occurred to our biblical ancestors that they could deal better with God by escaping from people and escaping from history and getting away from it all as if God was not there. History is the medium in which God works salvation, just as paint and canvas is the medium in which Rembrandt make works of art. We cannot get closer to God by distancing ourselves from the mess of the world and people. But most of us have a difficult time understanding history and people as the major and definitive places of God's presence. As one medieval saying has it, God draws a straight line with a crooked stick. He does his best work by using the most unlikely people. Hear what he's saying? We must see the world and see what's happening in it and the good things that we endure and embrace and love as if God Almighty is giving it. That's why James says that every gift that comes from above, it comes ultimately from the Father. Every gift, every paycheck, every child, every job, every spouse, every safe travel from A to B, every church, I mean, every friend you have has been given and gifted to you from God. Now, second thing is his hand shapes what we feel. Now, it makes perfect sense. If God is the one who's putting it into the heart of the king to treat them with kindness, then the question that we have to ask is, how did God want them to feel? when they received his kindness. Now, when I say his people, I'm a, you got to remember, they're in two different places at this moment. You got some who are where? In Babylon, who are near Artaxerxes, and you got about 50,000 of them who are over here in Jerusalem, right? And so the 50,000 came when Cyrus freed them 80 years before Ezra comes. So you got 50,000 over here, and then you got a, the rest of them over here. Now, here's the thing. Their conditions could not have been any more different. These people over here, they're living on government assistance. That when Cyrus releases the exiles, he sends them silver, he sends them gold, he sends them offerings, he sends them animals. And you know what? When Darius becomes the king after, later on, you know what Darius does? Darius says, hey, take the money out of my treasury and give it to him. Why would he have to do that? Because when they were building the temple, they got so discouraged that they took the materials and took the money that they were supposed to build the temple with and built their own homes. And so the Lord sent prophets to say, hey, that's why you don't have food. That's why your houses are not lasting. That's why you don't have crops. And you know what Darius does? Darius gives them money. And that's what you see right here. Artaxerxes is sending silver and sending gold and sending salt and sending oil and sending wheat and sending everything to them. Now, that is really different than what the uh, Israelites in Babylon were experiencing. Ezra is working for the king, right? You read Nehemiah chapter 1. Nehemiah, he actually says, while I was in Susa, the citadel, the fortified city, working for the king, and, and I was serving him new wine, and then I got word from the messenger that my father's land in Jerusalem, that they're living in shame and shambles. He says, how can I stay here? 
How can I stay here with this much wealth when they're poor and they're struggling? And so now think about it. You have one group. They're in the land. They're in God's land, but they don't have the provisions they need. You got this group over here. They have provisions, but they're not in the land. And what God does is orchestrate something absolutely beautiful. He says, I will get my people in my land and then they will have everything they need to know and worship and follow me. And you know what God does? He sends you go. You receive and you both are blessed. One group gets provisions. This other group gets the permission to go. Here's the question. How did God want them to feel when they were able to march out of Babylon? How did he want this group to feel when all of these goods arrived? How did he want them to feel? Did he want them to feel, oh, I'm blessed. I got silver. I got gold. Did he want this group to feel, I got freedom. I'm free. Is that what he wanted them to ultimately feel? And the answer is no. Look at it with me, how Ezra interprets everything that happens. Look at it in Ezra chapter uh, 7. Go down to verse 28. So look at 27. Blessed be the Lord, the God of our fathers, who put such a thing as this into the heart of the king to beautify the house of the Lord that is in Jerusalem. Then look at 28. And who extended to me his steadfast love before the king and his counselors and before all the king's mighty officers. Right there, right there. How did Ezra interpret the freedom to leave? It's not just about freedom. It's about your hesed, your covenant loyalty and your covenant faithfulness that's being played out right here in how this man is treating me. Now, that's an Old Testament word, and it literally means God is faithful. He will never be unfaithful. He loves you now and forever and forever. He will never leave you, and he will never forsake you. And what Ezra says is when this king gives me permission to leave, it's not just about permission. You are showing me that you love me and that you have not forgotten about me. And that you are being faithful to your word and your name. That is what God wants them to ultimately feel. It's good that you can go back, but something deeper is happening. You're showing me. You love me. How did God want the Israelites who were in Jerusalem to feel when these other guys showed up? Good question. Turn over one chapter, go over to Ezra chapter 9 and go down to verse 9. And this is when Ezra makes it. Ezra makes it. He says, we are slaves, yet our God has not forsaken us in our slavery, but has extended to us his steadfast love before the kings of Persia. So notice what happens there. When Ezra is in Babylon and gets to go, you're covenantally faithful. And then when we get there and we give you the goods, don't just look at the silver and the gold. 
Your God is covenantally faithful. Put the glasses on. When all of the goods come in and you can go and worship, don't just see Artaxerxes. Don't just see kindness. You need to see covenant faithfulness of your God to you. That's how to interpret these things that are coming right here, right now. Now, here's what this means. This means then, this is not gold for gold's sake and oil for oil's sake and wine for wine's sake and animals for animal's sake or freedom for freedom's sake. This was for love's sake. God says, see these things and see this freedom as an extension of my love. Have you ever felt the covenant faithfulness of God through a person? Have you? I have. Several years ago, we had a student at Jackson State who committed suicide. And um, it was hard. I mean, some of you are in here who know the student I'm talking about. And it was hard on me. I mean, we had dropped students off at this church that morning, and I got the phone call and left this church that morning to go. And it was rough. I had a meeting with this guy on my calendar for the next day. And I struggled for days and weeks with guilt and with shame. And how did I miss this? How do we not see this? And I don't know how it happened, but I got home on a Wednesday and one of my best friends was in my driveway. I didn't tell him to come. I think my wife kind of talked to him and said, hey, your boy is struggling. Can you like, anyway, but I got home and like he was there on my couch waiting on me when I got home. Didn't text me, didn't call, I had no idea. And Scott's like six, seven, six, eight. And so I walk in the house and like Scott is like right there on my couch and I walk into the house and I didn't say a word. Like he just came towards me and grabbed me and he put his six, eight frame around me and he put his hands around me and he cried with me and we sat there right there in that sorrow. And you know what? It felt as if the big hands of God were on me. It felt as if the heart of God was with me. It felt as if the words of God were upon me. It felt as if God himself had stopped whatever he was doing and thought it enough of me to drive and to show up and to park himself in my house, in my, in my living room, and to be there with me in my sadness. And you know what? It was not just about a friend doing what friends do. If you see it with the eyes of faith, it's God doing what God does through a friend. How do you see? Do you see and believe that right here in this room, that as you touch and as you call someone who is sick and as you visit someone who is sick and as you write someone who is in prison and as you give someone some food when they don't have food, that as you do all of that, that you are being the hand of God. And that's why Jesus says, 
When you come into my kingdom, you will come because you visited the sick. You clothed those who didn't have clothes. You gave food to those who didn't have food. You gave drink to those who didn't have drink. And the servant says, when do we do it? Jesus says, when you did it to the least of those, you did it to me. He is identifying himself with humans, saying that humans can actually be benefactors and be givers of covenant loyalty of God. And so see it, Christian, that when friends and family and loved ones love on you well, give praise and honor to your king. Last thing, last point, and I'm going to get us up out of here. His hand changes how we live. His hand is at work in the world and through others. His hand is communicating covenant love to us. And I love what Ezra says. I think the focus of this entire chapter is 27 and 28. Look at what happens after Ezra says, God put it in the heart of the king. And God extended to me his covenant love. And look at what it says. Therefore, I took courage. I took courage because the hand of the Lord was on me. And so I gathered leading men from Israel to go with me. Now, that was a dangerous journey to leave Babylon, to go to Jerusalem, to be carrying all of this stuff. We're going to see why they were scared of getting robbed. When you add up how much money and how much silver and how much gold and how much goods they are caravanning from Babylon to Jerusalem, it makes perfect sense why dude is afraid. And he says, you know what? When I saw that God was working in the king and I saw that God was showing me his covenant loyalty and faithfulness, I have courage. I can make this journey now. He's with me. And it might be hard and it might be scary, but he is with me. And I don't know what tomorrow might bring, but he is with me. And I don't know if I'm going to make it there alive, but he is with me. And I don't know if it's going to be problematic on the way, but he is with me. My courage is rooted in the covenant loyalty of God and the hand of God at work through people. Who is a man, but a person whose heart is in the hand of God. And so, the Heidelberg Catechism is wrestling through what does it mean when we say that we believe in God the Father, Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. Here's what it goes on to say in question 27. What do you mean by the providence of God? The almighty and everywhere present power of God, whereby, as it were, by his hand, he still upholds heaven and earth and all creatures and governs them that the herbs and grass and rain and drought and fruitful and barren years and food and drink and health and sickness and riches and poverty. Yes, all things come not by chance, but by his fatherly hand. Now, here's how it says we're to respond. What does it profit us to know this? that we might be patient in adversity, thankful in prosperity, and with a view to the future, may have good confidence in our faithful God and Father that no creature shall separate us from his love since all creatures are so in his hand that without his will they cannot as such move. 
That's how you wed the fact that God is at work and that God is showing covenant faithfulness. We can have courage. Nothing happens that he does not allow. We can have hope. We can face tomorrow. Now, this may seem crazy to some of you. This may seem crazy that God can work through an evil king to bring about good. But this is exactly what happened with Jesus. Jesus entered into history in time and space and was tried before an evil king. And they really did kill him. They really did crucify him. And then when Peter in Acts says, this Jesus that you crucified and you killed, you did it according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. You see, Jesus Christ enters history treated maliciously by humans and treated maliciously by kings. And you know what he says? God did it all. It was God saving you through the sun. It was God working through what looked was insurmountable. It was God working through what looked foolish to bring you salvation. That's our hope, Christian. Our God is at work through everything and everyone. And we don't have to be afraid. His hand is with us. This is yours in Christ. My prayer is that we would kind of put this on and live this way. Let's pray. Father, we love you. Thank you so much that your hand is real. It is at work. Give us eyes to see it. Stir our affections to feel your covenant faithfulness. Give us courage that we might face Whatever comes our way, for Christ's sake, amen.